Ladies and gentlemen, students, friends of LSE, my name is Professor Paul Kelly and I'm head of the government department at LSE. And I'd like to take this opportunity to welcome you to tonight's lecture as part of British government at LSE. <coughs> Note, British, not Scottish. <laughs> Although perhaps in the course of time, we might need such a series. <laughs> British government at LSE is an initiative that brings together LSE research and researchers with those who are engaged in government and politics in these aisles. It also serves as a focus for an engagement <coughs> with some of the main players in current British politics. Tonight's no exception. Our speaker tonight needs no introduction, unless, of course, you've never heard of Scotland, in which case the lecture should be interesting. And I should add that when I mentioned to a colleague that I was introducing Alex Salmon tonight, the colleague asked, who? So I thought everybody knows, but apparently not in the LSE. <laughs> it's a London thing. Okay. Alex Hammond is one of the most recognisable figures in politics in any part of these aisles and a dominant figure in Scottish politics. He's Scotland's first minister, leader of the SNP administration in the Scottish Parliament. Born in Scotland, educated at St Andrews, he's an economist by training, appropriate for him to be here, beginning in 1978 in the Government Economic Service before moving on to the Royal Bank of Scotland, becoming Royal Bank economist in 1984. In 87, he was elected for the parliamentary seat of Banff and Buchan and became convener of the Scottish National Party in 1990. In 1999, he was elected MSP for Banff and Buchan and leader of the SNP opposition. He stood down in 2001, but returned to Scottish politics and the Scottish Parliament in 2007 as SNP's First Minister. In 2011, he led the SNP to the quite extraordinary achievement of forming a majority administration in a system that's designed to create only coalitions. This is an achievement by anybody's standards. Our interest as British government at LSE is that LSE remains the focus for some of the most important debates in contemporary politics. And tonight's speaker is a leading figure on perhaps the most important of those debates, namely the very issue about the future shape of government in Britain and Scotland's place in the Union, an issue that I would regard as perhaps in the long term one of the most important, perhaps even overshadowing the current economic crisis. So in those circumstances, ladies and gentlemen, it's my great pleasure to introduce tonight's speaker, the Right Honourable Alex Salmond, MSP, First Minister of Scotland. Well, uh, thank you very much, Paul, and uh, thank you, uh, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, uh, you know, that was a very kind uh, introduction, Paul, and if you give me the, the name of that colleague who had never recognised me, then uh, things, will be, things will be okay. <laughs> now, it is a, a, an honour to, to be here at the London School of Economics. Uh, this institution has been at the, the very heart of debates on economic social policy in these islands uh, ever since it was founded by George Bernard Shaw, Beatrice and Sidney Webb and others uh, in the late 19th century. Now, I note that uh, only earlier this month, Beatrice Webb's journals were put online by the 
LSE library. If I may say so, Paul, it took you an inordinate amount of time to manage that simple achievement, but nonetheless, well done. <laughs> uh, they, they prove, however, uh, for those who have consulted them, uh, how often we repeat the mistakes of uh, previous generations. In September 1931, she wrote that, quote, We know now the depth of delusion that the financial world have either the knowledge or goodwill to guard the safety of the country over whose pecuniary interests they preside. She also complained that the financial elite of her time had made an appalling mess of their own business involving their country in a loss of business and prestige. Plus a change. <laughs> now, new eras throw up new challenges. However, the London School of Economics uh, has been at the forefront uh, of addressing uh, these new challenges. Uh, for example, you host the uh, uh, Grand uh, Grantham Research Centre for Climate Change and the Environment, headed, of course, by Lord Stern, whose view into climate change uh, made the point that action on climate change is fiscally responsible uh, as well as morally just. The costs of moving to a low-carbon economy are actually much less than the costs of not doing so. Now, this is an argument uh, that I'm going to return to when setting out how an independent Scotland could play a leading role in the efforts to tackle climate change. But the main purpose uh, of my speech is to set out how Scotland is economically constrained by its current constitutional position and to give Westminster six of the best. That's uh, outlining six key economic opportunities to support growth and promote jobs uh, that Scotland could seize when she becomes independent. Mind you, the prospect of giving Westminster six of the best and other mobs is not beyond people's imagination, but that's what uh, the purpose of this lecture is about. Firstly, uh, I want to talk about, however, our policy response to the ongoing financial and economic crisis. Now, LSE is again a, an appropriate place to do this. It was central to the debates uh, about the response to the Depression in the 1930s when Hayek argued strongly against Keynes and the Cambridge uh, economists. Now, perhaps uh, as someone who is very much in the Keynesian camp on this issue, perhaps I am speaking in the wrong institution tonight, uh, but nonetheless, the LSE was central to, to these debates at that time. There is, uh, in my view, something deeply counterproductive uh, about the current United Kingdom government's obsession with uh, austerity. Uh, as Keynes uh, was once reported as saying, uh, when the facts change, I change my mind. Uh, perhaps the worst part of the chance of the Exchequer's inability to adapt uh, to change circumstances, uh, it was never going to be credible or possible uh, to sustain a recovery uh, on export-led growth once it became clear that the United Kingdom's major export market, the Eurozone, uh, was enduring momentous challenges of its own. Uh, indeed, the decision by Moody's on Monday to put the UK's credit rating on a negative outlook uh, is a stark reminder that deficit reduction without economic growth is almost impossible to achieve, regardless of whether you ascribe to the Austrian school or the Cambridge school. Point one of the analysis from Moody's attributed that decision to the quote, increased uncertainty regarding the pace of fiscal consolidation in the United Kingdom due to materially weaker growth prospects over the next few years with risk skewed to the downside." Unquote. Now, uh, I was uh, interested yesterday when the, the Chancellor was responding to this rather disappointing uh, view from Moody's 
that in his response to the report, he seemed to have missed that very first point in the Moody's analysis, which is strange, partly because it's of such importance, and after all, it was point one in the analysis as presented. It was and should be and is a salutary reminder that even rating agencies, which might be expected to trend towards Hayek rather than Keynes on the subject of deficit reduction, are aware of the perils of low growth. Now, that lack of growth, of course, has its human cost, and that human cost is reflected in today's United Kingdom unemployment figures of 2.7 million. Now, the Scottish Government is still deeply aware, as are many, many places throughout these islands, of the lasting damage done to communities uh, by the mass unemployment of the 1980s. For that reason, we have done everything possible within the powers that we have to support economic growth and to create opportunity, especially for young people. In fact, one of the, the few glimmers of light in today's employment figures in Scotland is that they show the first stabilisation in many quarters for youth unemployment. Now, we have a, a range of uh, policies designed to underpin security in these uh, difficult times. We have a guarantee of no compulsory redundancies in the public sector. That doesn't mean there won't be a reduction and isn't a reduction in the public sector workforce, but what it does mean is that there is security for those who are working within the public sector. We have a policy of a living wage of £7.30 an hour throughout the public sector and the National Health Service, and we have made a commitment to provide certain services which are not prioritised in other parts of these islands. One of these, of course, is uh, free tuition fees uh, in Scotland, where we still see education as an investment in the nation's future rather than just a price to be borne by individuals. We also have given a guarantee of a, a training place to all 16 to 19 year olds who are not in employment, education, or training, in addition to providing 125,000 modern apprenticeships in Scotland over the next five years, every single one of which is attached to a job, to employment. Now, these steps on their own don't necessarily alter headline youth unemployment figures, partly because they rather strangely include full-time students looking for part-time work, but they are designed, and designed completely and singularly, to forestall the emergence of another lost generation. The policies that we pursue are designed to boost family spending power, make it easy as it can be in these difficult circumstances to plan their budget. That helps promote security and sustain confidence. Undoubtedly, in my estimation, the most economically dangerous part of the United Kingdom's spending plans is the slashing of capital spending in real terms by about a third over the next spending review period. And although the comparatively minor additional capital spending announced in the autumn budget statement was welcome, over 70% of that will be delayed till after the autumn of 2013. Now, despite the significant constraint placed on us in the last spending review, we are working to safeguard capital investment in Scotland. We have switched, even in these difficult times, some £750 million over the spending review period from revenue to capital. As a result, our capital investment will now rise in Scotland over the next three years, but from a Treasury set and very low baseline. And it will take time for that switch to come into effect. As part of this, the Scottish Futures Trust has set up a pipeline of non-profit delivering projects with local authorities in NHS Scotland, 
a direct encouraging private investment in local schools and hospitals. We're also encouraging that investment, for example, by establishing the Scottish Investment Bank in 2010 and maintaining the most supportive business tax environment anywhere in the United Kingdom, supporting our development agencies to create an attractive climate for inward investment. But again, we are stifled by lack of powers. For example, the ongoing failure of the United Kingdom banks to meet their Project Merlin targets for small businesses have done far more harm uh, to business investment than the Scottish Investment Bank can repair. By comparison, the UK government, the central government policy in the UK, seems at best at worst on a passive accept acceptance of the consequences of austerity, or at best on a hope that quantitative easing on its own by the Bank of England will come to the rescue. Now, the Bank of England, as we know, has decided to extend its asset-based purchase scheme by a further £50 billion to support the economy. Uh, and let me be clear that the work of the Bank of England through this crisis has helped protect the economy at a very difficult time. However, as Keynes once indicated, using monetary policy alone can be like pushing on a piece of string. Quantitative easing should only be one part of the response to economic difficulties. It requires genuine support from wider economic policy, in particular from fiscal policy, and the half measures attached to the Chancellor's autumn statement were clearly insufficient to do that job. For example, despite quantitative easing, net lending continues to fall. As a result, business investment, as we know, remains 16% lower than pre-investment levels, and within this, there are clear divergences between different types of company. Large companies, companies which can bypass banks by accessing markets directly, have benefited from the quantitative easing program. In contrast, small and medium-sized businesses don't have that option, and there remains a clear market failure uh, that needs to be addressed. Over the year to November of last year, Net lending to small and medium-sized businesses across the UK fell by 6.1% on the back of a 2.2% fall the previous year. Now, small and medium-sized businesses are vital to the long-term success of the economy. They're an essential source of innovation and will create many of the key job opportunities in the years ahead. There's therefore an urgent need for an effective mechanism from government to boost lending to small businesses something that was obvious four years ago and should have happened four years ago. The last time I was in, uh, in London uh, delivering the Hugo Young Lecture, I argued that an independent Scotland could be a beacon for progressive social opinion across these islands. Uh, indeed, I argued that a devolved Scotland was ready, in some aspects, something of a beacon. We have far more discretion in social policy at the present moment than we do in economic policy. But I would argue that the actions we've been able to take as a government, even within confined economic powers, have helped to mitigate the worst consequences of economic uncertainty. The recession in Scotland was shorter and shallower than the rest of the UK, a 5.9% downturn, severe enough, over five quarters rather than 7.2 over six quarters. That hasn't always been the experience of Scotland uh, in recessions and therefore is an important aspect. My submission is that with independence we could do much, much more uh, and potentially become a beacon in progressive economic policy as well as progressive social policy. 
Our submission is an independent Scotland should remain within a sterling zone, but have control over fiscal policy. Now, in recent weeks, uh, sources close to George Osborne have apparently said that Scotland might be uh, prevented uh, from uh, using the pound. Then, of course, these were the same sources who, who told the Daily Mirror uh, that the pandas would be seized from Edinburgh Zoo. I have decided to grant political asylum uh, to the pandas just to secure uh, their position. And then, of course, William Hague said, uh, William Hague, the Foreign Secretary, said that one of the consequences of Scottish independence uh, would be that UK embassies would stop promoting Scottish whisky. <laughs> somehow, somehow, I believe that the international whisky industry will probably get by <laughs> without the support of all of these diplomats <laughs> at embassy uh, reception. But you know, this stuff, rather like the stuff on sterling, is nonsensical. No nation can stop another from using a fully tradable currency, even if they wanted to. In addition, an independent Scotland actually has title uh, to part ownership of both the Bank of England uh, and of sterling. Uh, incidentally, the Bank of England was founded by uh, a Scot. I, I saw his portrait when I visited the Bank of England uh, uh, today. But uh, in addition to this, and maybe this is the, the real point, uh, why would any sensible minister want to stop Scotland from sharing a currency with the other countries in these islands? The rest of the UK would benefit from Scotland's continued membership of a sterling zone. Oil and gas production boosted the UK balance of payments, not government revenue, but the balance of payments, by £32,000 million in 2010, uh, about half of the UK's balance of payments deficit, and Scottish whisky exports alone, the William Hague may like to remember, contributed almost £4 billion in 2011. There's also another £20 billion or so uh, in other Scottish exports of business finance uh, and export services. So why would any United Kingdom government seriously want to do without the support that those sectors provide for sterling's value? Our onshore economy, never mind our offshore economy, is approximately 8% of the UK's, uh, broadly equivalent to the size of the entire United Kingdom financial sector, and even excluding oil and gas output, with the third richest part of the UK outside London and the southeast of England. Now we come to the nub of the argument. Some people say uh, a currency union would prevent an independent Scotland from using its fiscal powers. And of course, we would undoubtedly need to demonstrate fiscal responsibility as any sensible nation does. But Scotland is prosperous enough to stand, prosperous enough to stand on its own two feet. Indeed, the official statistics, the Government Expenditure and Revenue Scotland report, uh, demonstrates that from 2005 to 2010, Scotland was in a stronger relative fiscal position in the UK by a total of £7.2 billion. Uh, and last weekend, a study by the Independent Centre for Economic and Business Research, a, a body which not always has been favourable to the Scottish National Party in the past, uh, confirmed that Scotland receives no net subsidy uh, from the Treasury. So Scotland would therefore be able to meet any fiscal obligations of a currency union. Scotland and the UK and the rest of the UK have very similar economies in terms of prosperity levels, even in the non-oil economy. Scotland's productivity is virtually identical to the UK average. Uh, therefore, a currency zone for Scotland and the rest of the UK would be a very different creature from the Eurozone, 
which cover territories from the Ruhr in Germany to Kalamata in the Peloponnese. Actually, saying that makes me think that Kalamata sounds rather attractive, <laughs> place where olives grow. Uh, but unfortunately, its productivity in industrial terms uh, is somewhat less than the Ruhr Valley. A sterling zone would make sense for Scotland and for the rest of the UK. Indeed, a recent opinion poll have showed majority support for that in both Scotland and England. So let's assume that no sensible person would argue uh, against a currency zone. What independence would give Scotland is the ability to set our own fiscal and economic policy within the context of a stable monetary policy. It would give us the flexibility to provide specifically Scottish policies for specifically Scottish challenges. And above all, above all, it would allow us to promote sustainable economic growth. Now tonight, as I said, as I promised, I would give the UK Government six of the best by outlining just six examples of the fiscal opportunities that an independent Scotland would have at its disposal. The first of these is capital investment. Now, I've already laid out how we are trying, struggling, making sure that we act to mitigate uh, the major decline in capital investment, which is the consequence of the Treasury's approach to these things. Uh, we're determination that we have to safeguard such investment, and of course most countries can use borrowing powers for such purpose. However, at the moment, the Scottish Government has no borrowing powers whatsoever. We actually have less responsibility than a local authority, or for that matter, Transport for London, in the respect of borrowing. Of all the examples I could give as to where this would come in extremely useful at the present moment, I think perhaps the best is Scottish Water. Scottish Water, which is in public ownership in Scotland, has been a substantial success story. It's managed its infrastructure well, it's reduced water rates for both business and consumers, it has the lowest in the United Kingdom at the present moment, and last winter, for example, was able to send 160,000 litres of water to Northern Ireland during the water scarcity in the province. It is on any reasonable measure a social, economic and environmental success. The Scottish Water also has a massive capital investment programme. With borrowing powers, it could have the flexibility to accelerate that investment over the next two years, pumping demand into the economy, enhancing its own asset base. Why doesn't it do so? Well, it's currently prevented from doing so by Treasury rules, which effectively penalise the Scottish Government if Scottish Water decides to borrow money. That is unfair, irrational, inefficient. What makes it particularly absurd is that Scottish Water, of course, could borrow money cheaply and easily. It has a large asset base to borrow against. It is also a totally reliable cash flow in the form of water charges. If Scottish Water were allowed to borrow money, it would soon develop a bond rating comparable to, let's say, Network Rail, or perhaps even better than the United Kingdom Treasury itself. Secondly, control of taxation is not just about the general rate of taxation. It's also about nuances within the system supporting specific economic sectors that allow the possibility of large economic return. A good example of this at the present moment are the creative industries, one of the industries of the future and a sector in which Scotland deservedly enjoys a worldwide reputation. Uh, Jonathan Mills is an entrepreneurial Australian 
and a director, and director of the Edinburgh International Festival. He was stressing the importance of the creative industries, and he said that tax incentives would be valuable, quote, to allow Scotland's cultural sector to continue to flourish and expand. It would take a wide view of the creative industries and look at perhaps video games as a specific example of an industry where Scotland punches above its weight with clusters of companies in Dundee, Edinburgh and Glasgow, internationally recognised university courses and world famous successes such as Grand Theft Auto, <laughs> which I'm sure every single one of you played in your formative years uh, before you went on to more peaceable games in the next uh, generation. But this success story is at risk. It's at risk because computer games is a highly mobile, fast-changing industry. There are tax incentives in offer in Canada, United States, Australia, and a number of other countries. TIGA, the chief computer games industry body in the UK, has stated that UK government is, quote, failing to invest in the Scottish and the UK games sector, unquote, and that Scottish independence could absolutely reshape games industry policy uh, across Scotland. Uh, an example uh, of a UK body which is developing a favourable view uh, towards uh, Scottish independence. I merely mention that in terms of the naming of your courses that you were mentioning in the introduction. Now the submission is if Scotland had control of the levers of growth we could provide the right tax environment to boost six sectors like this, which are of major importance to Scotland, but often fall below the United Kingdom Government's radar screen. Thirdly, independence would allow us to support the overall business environment, not just specific sectors. My view on independent Scotland would compete for inward investment primarily by advertising the quality of our workforce, our natural resources, the quality of life, our communications links. We have no wish to enter a race to the bottom with anyone. However, we have to face reality, and metropolises like London and large countries can exert major centrifugal forces which draws power towards them. Small countries, regional economies need a fiscal edge to encourage decision-making centres to settle. Those headquarters and decision-making centres in turn become a hub of prosperity. Now, for this reason, the Scottish Government has modelled the impact of a 3% reduction in corporation tax. Our modelling concludes that such a reduction could support 27,000 jobs over the medium term while supporting the rebalancing of the economy principally by the development and boost of exports. The fourth initiative which we could use to boost growth is to vary specific taxes which have a broad impact on the economy. We have a very good example of this in the last few years in Scotland. The Scottish Government increased the ROC, the Renewable Obligation Certificate for Wave and Tidal Power, the cost of which was negligible uh, since the sector was and is tiny in production terms and ROCs are paid on production. However, the benefits have been enormous in encouraging companies in these industries to invest in research in Scotland. We now have the position where a majority of the world's wave and tidal devices are currently being tested in Scottish waters. AF passenger duty would be another example of a specific tax initiative that could deliver significant economic benefit. Uh, at the moment, one part of the United Kingdom has airports that are already at capacity. Uh, that leads us to uh, the challenge. Either we can follow the Mayor of London in building lots more airports all over the place, 
uh, or alternatively we can find a way to encourage other parts of these islands to have more direct links. Uh, it makes no sense to have a common rate for air passenger duty. Michael O'Leary is the chief executive of Ryanair and I have to confess I'm one of probably the only political leader in Europe who has managed to extract money out of Michael O'Leary, not from my political party, uh, but I persuaded him, along with others, uh, to sponsor a race in the Duke of Roxburgh, that's the Prince of Wales charity race meeting at Press, Perth Racecourse uh, last year. A fundamental success it was. Michael O'Leary, as well as being a highly successful chief executive, uh, has a string of racehorses. He didn't actually send any of his racehorses to, uh, to Perth, but nonetheless he uh, sponsored one of the, the races. But he said of air passenger duty in his own business, in my view Scotland and its tourist industry would benefit dramatically from having control over air passenger duty. Uh, that would significantly increase flights, frequencies, connectivity and jobs for Scotland. The realisation, perhaps, of the potential attractiveness of a devolved air passenger duty led the United Kingdom Treasury, of course, to veto it being in the Scotland Bill. This accords with what I've come to believe is the Treasury maxim. Devolve as little as possible. When you do, make sure it's something that can't be used. If all else fails, attach enough rules to it to stop whatever you're forced to devolve from working. I started uh, my economic career as a a GAS economist in the Department of Agriculture and Fisheries for Scotland. I was assistant agricultural economist, uh, probably the lowest grade of the government economic service, for which I was paid, incidentally, £3,114 a year. Not a week, or a month, a year. You tend to remember your first salary. It's like your first car number, your first uh, phone number. But I came to believe and develop a theory about the United Kingdom Treasury when I was an economist in the then Scottish office. And that was basically that there are three great lies in life. Uh, the first is the checks in the post. The second is, darling, I'll respect you in the morning. And the third is, I'm from the United Kingdom Treasury and I'm desperately trying to help Scotland. <laughs> the Treasury's approach to air passenger duty and its non-devolution holds this maxim still to be true. The fifth additional opportunity we could seize under independence is to make the best possible use of energy resources. And note I say energy resources, not just hydrocarbon resources. These resources are unparalleled in the European continent. We have 25% of Europe's tidal power potential, 25% of its offshore wind potential, and 10% of its wave potential. That's not bad for a, a nation with less than 1% of Europe's population. Uh, I uh, have paid a number of visits to China in the, uh, in the recent past, and I'm fond of, uh, of saying when uh, in China and pointing out that China is a, a country of 1,400 million people with a coastline of some 16,000 kilometres. Scotland is a country of five and a quarter million people with a coastline of 14,000 kilometres, hence the quarter of Europe's offshore marine tidal and wave and offshore wind potential. We also, of course, have approximately 40 years of oil and gas reserves and still an opportunity to correct a major policy mistake from the last generation and establish an oil and gas investment fund. Now, some people argue that there is no point in setting up such a fund in times of budget deficit. I disagree. 
As I mentioned earlier, between 2005 and 2010, Scotland had a relatively better fiscal position uh, than that of the rest of the United Kingdom. There will be different ways, of course, of using that comparatively, and it is comparatively strong position. You could increase spending, you could reduce taxation, you could reduce borrowing, or you could also establish an oil fund for investment. At the very least, Scotland would have the option of investing an oil fund in years when it was running uh, a current budget surplus. We've been doing some work uh, in the Scottish Government. I'll rephrase that. That kind of implies that the Scottish Government isn't working all the time. <laughs> We're doing some analytical studies on this matter in the Scottish Government. If Scotland had been independent in 1979, oil revenues could have reduced our public sector debt from 39% of GDP in 1979 to zero by 1983-84. We then had to continue to run budget surpluses throughout the late 1980s. Scotland's per capita share of UK public sector debt in 2009-10 was approximately £65 billion. If we had been able to establish a sovereign wealth fund as Norsey oil revenue started to come on stream a generation ago, then it's likely that Scotland would have currently have net financial positive assets worth anything from £87 billion to £117 billion sterling. That is the past. That is the, the past that... Uh, is there and lost and cannot be corrected in terms of what happened, but it does provide an exemplar of what shouldn't be allowed to happen in the future. So let's look forward. Even if you invested a billion a year over 20 years, it could create an investment fund worth just under £30 billion within 20 years. Uh, a billion is about 8% of current oil and gas revenues. Norway, Alberta, Alaska, all of funds of this nature, as do many countries in the Middle East, North Africa, Central Asia. This lecture theatre is named after Sheikh Zayed, uh, the man who established the largest oil fund in the world, the oil fund of Abu Dhabi. In 1990, Norway established its oil fund, and the first investment was made in 1996, a modest contribution of just under £200 million sterling. Its returns have averaged 4.2% a year since 1998. It is now the largest pension fund in Europe with a value of approximately 1% of global equity markets. It is currently worth 3 trillion kroner or £330 billion, over £65,000 for every man, woman and child in Norway. Now, the Prime Minister, Harold Macmillan, towards the end of his career in public life, it is said to have likened the Thatcher government's use of privatisation proceeds, and this was a characteristically grand analogy he was making, as akin to selling off the family silver to pay for the grocery bills. The conduct of successive UK governments is in many ways far worse than that. It's as though they won the lottery jackpot and then not bothered to set up the savings account. This weekend, I'll be meeting with Nobel laureate, former chief economist of the World Bank, Joseph Stiglitz, who I'm delighted to say is now a member of the Scottish Government's Council of Economic Advisers. It's appropriate that I'll meet Professor Stiglitz in Aberdeen, the energy capital of Europe, to discuss, among many other things, the benefits to Scotland of establishing such an oil fund. Speaking on uh, Newsnight, uh, a little over a year ago, he said, you, by which he meant the UK, have squandered that wealth. You took all the North Sea oil and you did very well for the period because you were living off that wealth. You mistook the success of the Thatcher era as a success based on good economic policy when it actually was a success based on living off wealth and leaving future generations impoverished. 
He then said it was imperative that an oil fund be set up to ensure that future generations can benefit from the wealth that still exists off the shores of Scotland. Now, the development of an oil fund for Scotland, once fiscal conditions allow, would promote economic responsibility and stability. Revenues could be invested rather than spent on current expenditure during good financial times and therefore counteract the effects of economic downturn. So these are five of the economic powers, the things you can do fiscally to boost growth and investment. But for the six, we need to ask, what is all of this fiscal manoeuvring designed to do? The aim, the purpose of such initiatives is to increase growth, uh, to broaden the base of the economy, to re-industrialise the country. On a day when the latest unemployment figures came out, there is a pressing demand uh, to look to the future. Our uh, largest cities, Edinburgh and Glasgow, this week have been named by the Foreign Investment magazine as Europe's two top large cities of the future. The 2011 Ernst & Young UK Attractiveness Survey report concluded that Scotland was the leading centre for foreign direct investment in the UK in terms of employment generation. Now, Why are these things true? The reason is that a host of companies see Scotland's potential for growth, and I see in that potential the potential for reindustrialisation. Europe will need energy from the seas in the 21st century as it meets the challenge of becoming a low-carbon economy. It's an area where Scotland has a huge competitive advantage. We will be able to produce energy better and cheaper than anywhere else and in deeper waters. The Organisation of Forms Scotland has indicated even using fairly conservative assumptions by 2020 Scotland's electricity exports could increase £2 billion per year. Scotland's world-class university research base will also come to the fore in this process. We have established the Saltire Prize, one of the largest challenge prizes for innovation in the world, in, in conjunction with National Geographic, the largest educational charity in the world, to encourage the development of commercially viable marine energy. We are supporting options to pioneer carbon capture and storage technology at Peterhead. Ladies and gentlemen, I, I delivered uh, uh, my Hogmanay message, that's, uh, that's the day before New Year uh, in Scotland, uh, from the National Museum uh, of Scotland. Uh, and in the background, uh, which has been recently refurbished and is absolutely glorious, and if you're coming to Scotland, make sure uh, you visit the wonderful National uh, Museum. Uh, a million people have taken that opportunity since it was opened in the, in the summer. And in the background, uh, as I was delivering the, the broadcast, we went through various of the rooms of, uh, of the National Museum. And in the background, there were things like James Watt's steam engine, or uh, Alexander Fleming's Nobel Prize for the discovery of penicillin, or, or John Logie Baird's first working colour television set, invented in 1932, <laughs> about 40 years before colour television was applied uh, across the country. I believe that uh, if we handle this opportunity correctly in another generation within that National Museum there will be the, the great engineering designs of marine energy technology uh, which will be a substantial part of the new energy systems which will power Europe in this century. These uh, 
museum, the exhibits remind us that Scotland was crucial to the development of the Industrial Revolution. Advances made in clean energy in the next decades, in my view, will be equally transformational for the world economy. I am determined that many of these too will be developed in Scotland. Finally, clean energy will facilitate a transformation of the Scottish economy. It provides a, an opportunity for that reindustrialisation. Scotland has a reputation for manufacturing and remaining excellence which goes back decades when the phrase Clyde built was known around the world for quality. Now that manufacturing base has been significantly reduced, of course in part through inevitable economic change but often through misguided policy. But Scotland does still have a strong core of skill in this field. Recently I was in Dundee to launch Michelin's European Factory of the Futures. One of the workers on the assembly line said to me that engineering was part of Scotland's DNA. Indeed it is. And thanks to North Sea Oil, we have a particular experience of engineering and maintenance work in extreme weather conditions. That inheritance will be used as we start to manufacture the turbines that will power Scotland and wider Europe in the future. Major international companies such as Mitsubishi, Gamesa, Samsung, ABB, Alstom, Eon, Vattenfall are already working with leading Scottish energy and engineering companies such as Scottish and Southern, Scottish Power, Clyde Blowers, The Wood Group and Global Energy to invest in the development of pioneering wind and marine energy technologies. Indeed, just a, a few days ago we saw the announcement the new offshore renewable energy catapult innovation centre for offshore renewables will be headquartered in Glasgow. That announcement builds on the £90 million engineering centre for Strathclyde University announced by the Scottish Government and Scottish Enterprise last year. That means up to 1,000 academic and industrial engineers were working in Glasgow, the city which dominated the marine engineering of the Industrial Revolution, planning that engineering leap forward to dictate the marine engineering of the coming century. Now, Scotland is becoming recognised internationally as a powerhouse in green energy. Scotland's great cities and ports are ideally placed to become a key hub for the rapidly growing and multi-billion pound offshore industry. My submission is we could do much more with greater powers. Currently we don't even have control of the Crown Estate Commissioners who manage Scotland's seabed out to 12 nautical miles and almost half of its foreshore. The licences and therefore the revenues of much of our offshore energy are therefore in the hands of elected commissioners accountable to the United Kingdom Treasury. I might not mind so much if the money went direct to the Royal Family and to Her Majesty the Queen, uh, but as is normal in these matters, it goes to the United Kingdom Treasury. Now, devolving control of uh, Scotland's seabeds is a key ingredient of delivering the full benefits of the marine energy revolution for Scotland, ensuring that the benefits can be widely shared across communities. But as we uh, try to reindustrialize Scotland, it's ironic that a party which was responsible for much of the deindustrialization of Scotland is decrying those ambitions. Uh, Conservative Party attacks on renewables are actually an attack on existing and expected jobs which are hugely required given the economic record of success of Westminster government. It's an, uh, it is a, a campaign of economic vandalism, which hasn't been seen for many years. The attempt is pernicious, since Scotland's emerging success in renewable technology illustrates the economic benefit of the sector to our nation, our communities, our families. 
uh, that should be encouraged, not attacked. Now, at the very heart of the case for independence is a simple principle. The people best placed to act in Scotland's best interests are those who choose to live and work in Scotland. Now, let me stress those who choose to live and work in Scotland. One of my best friends in life was uh, Bashir Ahmed, the MSP for Glasgow in the last parliament, tragically died a few years ago. Bashir's uh, favourite saying was that he wasn't interested in where people came from in Scotland, he was interested in where they were going. So those who live and work in our country. But many of the key decisions affecting Scotland are still taken by a government with less than a quarter of Scotland's MPs and whose dominant party, the Conservatives, have only one member of Parliament in Scotland. That is to say, more pandas than Tory MPs in Scotland <laughs> at the present moment. And I'm sure that this is a point where the Prime Minister, who is known for his humility in these matters, will remember uh, as we begin negotiations in Edinburgh tomorrow. Now, the consequences are seen in austerity measures that few people in Scotland voted for, the forthcoming legislation, potentially the, the crying of Scotland's best growth opportunity of the present generation. An independent Scotland would pursue policies of ambition and responsibility. We would use Scotland's natural resources, the skilled workforce, to build a sustainable economy. Based on producing goods and services that people actually want, we wouldn't live off the illusory profits of periodic asset booms. My submission, as I've been making uh, this tour around uh, England, uh, and uh, I'm delighted uh, to see sir, so many people here at the, at the London School of Economics. I, I should mention that uh, I had a thousand in Liverpool on, uh, on Monday night, uh, also an invitation to run for mayor of that great city, which I, <laughs> which I had to decline. Uh, uh, I merely mentioned that in case a similar invitation was coming forward. <laughs> but one of the themes that I'm developing is that I do actually believe that England, the rest of the UK, has much to gain from the emergence of a secure, prosperous ally to the North. I think there is an enormous amount to be gained in terms of relationship from the knowledge that countries should raise their own taxes and pay their own bills, stand on their own feet economically, the message that sends in terms of people's self-esteem both individually and collectively as a country is of huge importance in terms of real economic development and relationships with others. My submission is an independent Scotland only seeks to make a responsible contribution to the European and world stage and that would benefit in a very real fundamental sense all of the nations of these islands. Thank you very much indeed. I'd like to take questions. If I can just ask you, um, I'll take them in batches of three. If I can ask you to just briefly mention who you are, so a name if you're a student or, or where you come from. Please wait until the microphone comes um, and we'll try and get as many questions in as possible. So, so first question. Okay. Gentleman in the middle, one on the side, and then 
try and pass the microphone down, and then one on the uh, on, on, on my right in the far corner. So, and I I will move back. So, go ahead. Uh, hello, good evening. Um, my name is Maya. I'm a medical student at King's College London. Uh, I know this session today is meant to be about British governments, but I can't help but ask a question about the Scottish referendum. Um, some of the current poll data, as you're probably well aware, suggest that you know there isn't the current support to get full independence for Scotland. So I was just wondering, how are you going to communicate the message that you gave to us today, as the Scottish people? And secondly, if you don't win, what direction will you attempt to take Scotland? Thank you. <laughs> the, uh, well, positively. Should we take, should we take oh, sure, of course, absolutely. Yeah. yeah, hello. My name is Uriel Barba. I'm a master's student here at the LSE, and I'm from Barcelona. Uh, I would like to ask regarding EU membership. Uh, I know that uh, in some occasions you have expressed that Scotland would become automatically a member of the EU, but this view is at least contested in the sense that uh, in information appeared some days ago in the press, some countries such as Spain could veto Scotland's accession to the EU. I would like to know your thoughts on, on this and whether the Scotland independence project is still viable outside the EU. One, one final question from that side. Um, hello, my name is Tina Kaiser and I work for the German newspaper Die Welt. We met in September actually, I don't know if you remember. Um, I would have a lot of questions but the question well, I would like to ask now is um, what is Scotland's share and the depth of, of the UK? So how would you organise that? How much would you be willing to take? Thank you. Yeah, thank you. So we'll have. Right. The, uh, well, I, I was going to say to the, the gentleman in the middle there that how would we argue the case positively? Uh, the, the reason for that is I've got a wee theory which is uh, unfashionable in, uh, well, I was going to say UK politics, but to be fair, it's unfashionable in lots of places that the, if you look at the negative campaigning styles which have developed in modern politics in many countries, uh, then usually what happens is people believe that uh, negative campaigning is hugely successful. Uh, my belief, absolutely firmly, and I can promise I've now tested this in two elections with reasonable success, is that negative campaigning only works if it's up against another negative campaign. Uh, and if it's up against another negative campaign, then the most negative campaign wins. Uh, and, uh, you know, uh, no criticism intended for Verde in particular, but if you look at any uh, American primary elections in particular, which are much more vicious than the general election in America, uh, then uh, you can see... Uh, substantial evidence uh, which would indicate that's true. But I believe a positive campaign will always trump a negative campaign. And a positive campaign is particularly important when people are looking for, uh, uh, for vision. Uh, of course, a second bit of uh, uh, experience uh, that I'm sure of is that in tough times, there's an even bigger premium on vision for the future than there is in more relaxed times. Uh, people are looking for a uh, an articulation of a vision which takes them beyond current circumstances and builds a substantial progressive opinion and prospect of a better future. So the key answer, how do we persuade people? By arguing positively. Incidentally, the polls ain't bad at the present moment, and the Sunday Times was 48% for, 51% against. I wish it was 51% for, 48% against, but nonetheless, in historic terms, that's not too bad. The SNP uh, have over 50% the vote uh, in the latest uh, uh, opinion polls uh, uh, in Scotland. But, uh, you know, we've got work to do uh, and uh, we've got questions to answer, but above all, we've got an articulation of, of a positive vision. Uh, the gentleman from uh, uh, Barcelona, uh, actually, the, the, the references you've seen have, uh, have been largely from the 
sources close to the UK Foreign Office. Uh, if you actually look at what the Foreign uh, Minister, the new Foreign Minister of Spain said when he was asked a question uh, just over two weeks ago in Brussels, he said uh, exactly the opposite. He said that uh, he didn't consider the developments in the United Kingdom had relevance uh, for uh, uh, the Spanish situation because they were particular to themselves. Uh, the argument there rests on the the reasons and origins of the state of the United Kingdom in, in 1707, and that is it was a voluntary union of two states. And the argument goes on that if that union is dissolved, then what you create is two successor states out of one, both of which inherit the obligations and the understanding, the benefits and the responsibilities of the previous state. You'll find an agency wire report from yesterday quoting European Commission legal officials as supporting that idea, which is not that surprising because it's an argument that's been made uh, progressively in the past by people like Emil Noel, who was Director General of the European Commission for 25 years, or Eamon Gallagher, who was uh, uh, Director General for a, a period as well, or Maitre de Roux, who, who uh, authored the European Dictionary, the sort of Bible of procedure in the European Commission, or Lord Mackenzie Stewart, who was the only Scottish judge uh, to chair the European Court of uh, Justice. And, and basically, the argument is that the cases are indivisible. What happens to one entity following the dissolution of the United Kingdom would happen to the other. And what was indicated in the Wire report yesterday is that both could negotiate their position, but negotiate it from within the European Union uh, and uh, be subject to majority voting in the Council of Ministers as opposed to being in the position of an applicant state subject to a veto. So there would be successor states uh, applying from uh, or negotiating their position from within the Union as opposed to applicants from outside. Now, I I've made it my business uh, not to uh, uh, interfere in the politics of other countries. Uh, and although, of course, uh, I believe that uh, you know, people have the right to expression and self-determination, indeed the European Union and indeed the United Nations have that in their founding charters, and that's my general attitude, uh, I, I find it best not to say anything uh, which could be uh, interpreted uh, as being a, a commentary on the internal politics uh, of other countries. But uh, people do have the right of self-determination, and that are Scotland's circumstances. In terms of uh, Scotland's shared debt, I'm afraid we, you know, what's one of the pros and cons of independence, and uh, one of the pros is we would uh, have title to Scotland's huge uh, natural resources, which I spent some time talking about. One of the cons, of course, is that we'd have to take a population share of the accumulated debt of the United Kingdom, which is very, very substantial uh, indeed. Uh, you know, that is the basis in which countries come to amicable uh, agreements on these matters. Uh, we did some uh, work on what that would mean, and it would mean that Scotland currently, if we took last year's figures, would have a debt ratio of 65% of GDP, which is high, far too high. But then, of course, the UK has one of 75% of uh, GDP. Uh, the European Union average is 83%. Uh, and the G7 average is 104%, largely because of America's influence in the, the G7 averages. So all countries have uh, significant, well, all Western countries, except Norway and Switzerland, have significant debt problems uh, at the present moment. My submission in the speech was to tackle that issue. Uh, then you have to have both an approach to responsible public spending, but you must have a growth strategy in the economy because without growth in the economy, uh, there is a long, long, long period uh, before you're able to handle uh, a debt burden of that scale. Hence, uh, the concentration on outlining a, a growth strategy or a fiscal 
six policies which would engender significant growth in the economy. More questions? Um, one and <coughs> the two on that. The lady with the glasses. Professor Hicks at the front here. <coughs> and the gentleman with the yellow tie. Hi, thank you. Um, thank you for a very persuasive argument. My name's Anne Leyburn, um, and whilst I am a Scot living in London, I have to give a name check to where I'm from, Thurso, in the very far north. Um, thank you very much. I completely agree with the need to become a manufacturer, and I equally fully support environmental progression. One is pretty, and one is not. How do you reconcile one with the other? For example, if marine technology impacts our glorious coastline, which is one of our greatest assets. Thank you. Over here, I'm Simon Hicks, a professor in the government department here. Um, I'm generally very sympathetic to your argument, um, but I wanted to pick you up on, on the response you just gave to the question about the EU there. So. Your argument is that Scotland has the right unilaterally to, to vote to leave the United Kingdom, but then what would happen is a dissolution of the United Kingdom, and so it would be a dissolution of a member state of the EU. Can you have it both ways? Can you unilaterally decide to dissolve the United Kingdom, or would you actually be voting to leave the United Kingdom? Okay, nice technical question. The gentleman in the yellow tie. Uh, John Wilson, Press. Uh, if uh, Scotland's independent, how much would it spend on its defence? Okay. Maybe we'll just take one more. Okay. Just, there was a short gentleman just behind you. Hello, um, Dominic Wolseley from Aberdeen, studying here at uh, the LSE. Um, you've uh, talked about lowering corporation tax um, uh, when Scotland becomes independent. Uh, how would you uh, then aim to kind of meet that, um, fill that funding gap? Uh, would uh, spending have to be lowered? Okay. Right. The uh, the lady from uh, uh, Thurso first, uh, a very good feeling about uh, Thurso uh, because uh, during the election campaign, and uh, nobody ever knows quite what's going to happen in the election campaign, uh, there was a, a last local by-election in the week before the campaign period uh, started, uh, which was in Thurso, <laughs> uh, and uh, which uh, uh, resulted in a, a swing to the SNP of unbelievable proportions, uh, which uh, filled me with some confidence uh, for the rest of the, the campaign. So I have a, a strong fellow feeling towards uh, Thurzo at, uh, uh, at the present moment. The, the, the question you asked is a very interesting one. I, I mean, I can't help to have uh, uh, wrestled with this issue recently because I get daily letters from Donald Trump. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, suggesting that I, I, I refocus uh, Scottish energy policy. Uh, I think that my answer would be this, that the, the development of uh, offshore wind in Scotland, which is one of the free technologies which uh, we have uh, a world lead in deep offshore wind. Uh, and if you take, for example, the, 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 the sites around Scotland, uh, then you're talking about sites which are some 20, 15, 20, 25 kilometres offshore, like, for example, the Beatrice uh, uh, development, which has had demonstrators uh, in uh, Beatrice Field for the last five years. Now, I, I can honestly promise you that the, the two demonstrators in the Beatrice Field have not excited uh, great uh, opposition, uh, basically because they appear as even these massive five megawatt machines appear as teeny weeny specks on the horizon. You know, we're not, as you know, unused in Scotland to seeing massive offshore structures, <laughs> because before Beatrice, 
it became a, a development uh, wind power uh, testing station. Of course, it was an offshore oil field, uh, which had some massive structures on it as well. So, uh, no, I, I, I don't share people's worries about development of deep offshore wind. There's a very, very large ocean, uh, and I, I think we're well able to do that without impacting on Scotland's scenic beauty. Uh, I should say that the objection to the, uh, the wind farm in Aberdeen is not, uh, incidentally, 20 kilometres offshore, it's about four, three or four kilometres offshore but it's not a commercial wind farm the proposal there is for a developmental testing station to test turbines and there's only 11 turbines uh, involved in that particular station. But there are always tensions aren't there, between how you see a, an industry develop uh, uh, and people's appreciation of, uh, of development. There's hardly an energy development certainly, in fact there are very few industrial developments that don't often excite opposition. My belief is that the development of marine energy is an opportunity to reindustrialize our country. I think the benefits will be absolutely massive. I think we're talking tens of thousands of jobs, tens of billions of investment. I think we're talking about the, as current technology will offer us, uh, and there may be new technologies in the future which change that perspective, one of the, the cheapest, most secure, and environmentally compatible ways of producing substantial quantities of electrical energy. Of course, the environmental consequences of not doing this, uh, of continuing with uh, hydrocarbons, uh, are much, much more substantial uh, than some wind turbines 20 kilometres offshore, uh, or for that matter, wave and tidal machines, which incidentally I think are very, very elegant and, uh, and interesting uh, and uh, secure future means of energy. Uh, in terms of uh, your point, Simon, the the, the answer I would give is this, that this is not an unagreed uh, referendum that's taking place now. The, the UK government, uh, the talks I'll be having with the Prime Minister tomorrow have offered, uh, as they put it, a section 30 to, to have uh, a question which is fair, decisive uh, and legal. I, I quote them uh, exactly. Uh, we've had, of course, unilateral declarations of devolution <laughs> in, the, in the United Kingdom. And of course the truth is absolutely in constitutional terms, as you're well aware, that a decision of any kind has to be ratified by the United Kingdom Parliament, which carries that sovereignty of the Queen in Parliament. So your sovereignty question is answered by the acceptance of the parliamentary process. As you're well aware, every United Kingdom Prime Minister since Harold Wilson uh, has made the point that if Scotland wishes to become independent then they wouldn't stop the process. Even Margaret Thatcher who I suppose could be identified as, uh, as the, the greatest uh, single opponent of Scotland's aspirations in constitutional terms said in her memoirs The Downing Street Years, and I think I quote her exactly, uh, that uh, uh, Scotland is uh, a nation of great reputation. If the Scots were to decide on independence, uh, no English politician should gainsay that process. Um, the quote may or may not be exact, but nonetheless it's pretty, it's pretty accurate. Uh, so if Meryl Streep says it's good enough... Uh, <laughs> Uh, the answer to the question on defence expenditure, about 2.5 billion, we believe, would uh, enable us to operate the, uh, uh, the bases we have in Scotland in a conventional uh, defence posture. The big advantages, in my view, of having a, a Scottish defence force are twofold. One, uh, that we wouldn't be dragged into illegal conflicts like Iraq. We'd have the option of uh, deploying our forces in terms of United Nations mandate or for peacekeeping exercise in conjunction with our friends uh, uh, and allies. And the second advantage is that uh, I uh, think that, that, that Scotland, if we talk about Scotland's coastline, is that Scotland is too beautiful a country 
uh, to have the largest concentration of weapons of mass destruction in the continent of Europe uh, in the west coast of Scotland, and hopefully it will help us uh, attend to that particular uh, difficulty. Uh, the, and I've missed out one question from, uh, was it John at the end? Now, just help me out, because you're a professor and you know about these things. What was it about again? <laughs> <laughs> Do you want to remind us? Go on. John from Aberdeen. Dominic. Closer. Um, it's, uh, <laughs> Dominic, I beg your um, in, uh, Your intention is to uh, lower corporation tax oh, yeah. uh, for a pro... Um, kind of pro-business uh, uh, economic policy after uh, independence and I would generally agree with that if you look at cases like the Czech Republic it's been uh, successful but I just want to know how you would fulfill the funding gap in terms of uh, in that, terms of spending. In that case you've almost uh, answered your own question. I should say Dominic is not a plant in the audience <laughs> despite the accent. They, well if you look at uh, the Czech Republic or Austria or Ireland for example then you'll find as they lowered corporation tax they didn't actually have any year in which corporation tax fell, certainly not in Austria and Ireland. The way you do it is through announcement effect. You say what you're going to do in advance. You do it progressively so you get the advantages of the increase in investment by the announcement effect uh, and find that uh, you secure the revenues. I should say, of course, the Chancellor Exchequer uh, is proposing to lower corporation tax to 23 pence in the United Kingdom. Uh, and is not forecasting any year in which corporation tax revenue will fall over that period. We've modelled going from 23 pence to 20 pence. We're interested, because I think it's vital for, uh, uh, for smaller economies, or indeed, incidentally, I would argue, for regional economies within states, to have a competitive edge. Uh, otherwise, the forces that draw economic activity, particularly headquarters activity, to, to the centre are very, very powerful indeed. For as long as I've been an economist, which I was before I was a politician, you know, people in Scotland are puzzled. How do you have, how do you retain major headquarter operations in Scotland? Uh, which has been a huge difficulty, not just for the Scottish economy, but for the regional economies in England and indeed for, for, for small countries. Uh, and, uh, and the benefits from doing that, of course, are manifest. I mean, in, in Aberdeen, because of the resource base, we have one of the most flourishing offshoot sectors of new company formation of companies into export industries, people spinning out of large major oil and gas companies and forming their own companies, because Aberdeen is a major decision-making centre in energy technology. How do you replicate that in other industries and therefore get the benefits of future company formation? I, I, I think there are a number of things you can do, but in industries where there isn't a resource imperative in terms of location, I think you need a comparative taxation edge, and I think the benefits of having that uh, are substantial and manifest, particularly in attracting decision-making centres with all the attendant economic benefits that flow. Okay, la last set of questions. I'll take some from the back, if that's so. The gentleman uh, with the glasses towards the very back there. Um, similarly, across in the middle row, and then I'll take two. Um, the gentleman in the white shirt, and then with the... Um, Beige jumper behind. Okay. So, yeah. yes. Yeah. Hello. Um, say one. Yes, please go ahead. Yes. Uh, my name is Alistair Beaton. I'm a Scottish writer who chooses to live in England. Um, I'm fascinated by the very positive portrayal of how the Scottish economy will be. I'm particularly interested in how um, all these extra planes flying in and out of Scotland are going to contribute to the low carbon economy 
because it's obviously your plan is to reduce air passenger duty for that very purpose. And more generally, I feel there's a much too benign emphasis being put tonight on the whole idea of inward investment. It doesn't come without a price. Your government contributed to the destruction of a beautiful piece of Scottish coastline, and I wondered whether you feel that your friend, or let's say ex-friend Donald Trump, is an excellent example of inward investment. Thank you. Lady in the, in the middle. Yeah. And, then, and then over there. So yes, go ahead, please, quick. Hi, um, yeah, my name is Sally, and I'm from Panama. Um, I'm currently studying in the sixth form in the UK, and I should be here at LSE studying international relations this fall. Um, I was just wondering about the wording of the question of the referendum. I know it's been in the news. Um, do you still intend on asking like the same wording? And also, um, do you think the rest of Britain has a say in the referendum, or should it be a Scottish, for the Scottish people to decide? Thank you. Thank you. It's a number of questions there. So the gentleman in the white shirt, and then. Hello, Alex. Steve Carter from North Lanarkshire, now living in London. Um, to follow on from Dominic's uh, question on the reduction in corporation tax, to me an equal issue is how that's collected. Would you look to move away from the currently softly, softly approach of the UK Treasury, as been reported a lot in the press recently, or would you look to change that, and if so, how? And then the very last question just behind you. Behind you, if you can pass it, just behind you. And then I have to stop. Um, First Minister, good evening. Um, you've made a compelling case of Scottish independence for Scotland. I'm just wondering, would an independent Scotland be able to bail out the Royal Bank of Scotland? Thank you. Okay. Can I... Uh, uh, Alistair first. I, I think we're probably doomed to, to disagreement, Alistair. Uh, uh, the two things I'd make uh, is that uh, the, uh, we've, we've adopted... Uh, climate change legislation, which has the world's most progressive target for, uh, for CO2 reductions, uh, uh, or at the world's equal most uh, uh, progressive target. A number of other countries have, uh, have done the same, uh, which is uh, 42% by uh, uh, 2020, 50% uh, and, and so on. Now, we're more than halfway to that target on a 1990 baseline, so we've not been inactive uh, at doing so. I would argue that a direct passenger, I mean, what happens when people in Scotland fly internationally? They, they, they go to Heathrow or to another of the hub airports and then fly again. I think it's perfectly well able to argue that a direct flight, uh, which is one flight rather than two, uh, is not a substantial contributor to, uh, to, and certainly it won't deflect us from our, our carbon targets. Uh, second point you make, uh, well, you know, it's a, it's a question of judgment. Uh, you know, whether you think a golf course is a, an incredibly destructive aspect of the, uh, the economy, I, I don't think it is so, but they, it went to a public local inquiry in Scotland. Everybody got a shout, even people who were protesting. You uh, no, okay, uh, sorry, that's, not, that's absolutely not true. Uh, the public inquiry was not overruled. The, what you're arguing is that a committee of Aberdeenshire Council uh, and by a casting vote, it initially ruled against the Trump development, but it then transpired that 48 out of 60 councillors in Aberdeen then voted, Aberdeenshire rather, voted in favour of it. The government called in the application and ordered a public local inquiry where everybody, uh, and this was acknowledged by you know, the, the, the people who were protesting as well as the people who were supporting the development, everybody got a fair shout in front of a public local inquiry. The recommendation 
of the public local inquiry it was in favour and ministers approved it. Incidentally, on that aspect, and you know, I'm uh, someone who uh, you know, made my support well known, but I didn't actually do anything because I was the local MSP uh, and therefore was not allowed to be part of the decision-making process. And also just gently as possible, without sounding uh, you know, at all arrogant about this, I then submitted myself to an election in that constituency and received 70% of the vote. So, you know, people by and large must have thought it was quite reasonable what my actions were or alternatively decided to vote for me despite the fact that they didn't agree with me. My feeling on the balance of local opinion, the overwhelming balance actually, was in favour of that development. Uh, but just because I happen to agree with uh, Mr Trump as far as the development is concerned, I, I don't see why I have to agree with him on everything. <laughs> and as far as the energy policy of Scotland is concerned, and I, I think it probably should best be developed by the democratic parliament elected by the people of Scotland. And although we're always interested very interested to hear the views of lots and lots of people. Uh, I think at the end of the day it's probably better to, to leave it to the, uh, the Parliament elected for that uh, purpose. Uh, the lady who was... Uh, oh, right, okay. Uh, the, the, the lady from uh, Panama was, uh, was asking, I think, about the question uh, in the, uh, uh, the referendum. We put forward a question, basically because we were asked successively and many, many times over to say what our question should be. We've suggested the question, do you agree that Scotland should be an independent country? Uh, that seems to me a pretty clear uh, question. In fact, the leader of the Conservative Party in, in Scotland, uh, uh, not necessarily the most enthusiastic person I've ever met concerning Scottish independence, uh, congratulated us on asking a question which was simple, clear uh, and decisive, uh, as she put it. So that's a pretty clear question. But look, what happens is government propose questions, uh, then independent bodies such as the Electoral Commission assess the question, uh, and then the Parliament decides the question. This is what happens, as has happened recently, at least in all referendum uh, in the United Kingdom. And exactly the same process would apply. Uh, so that we'll go, the question will go through that process, a government proposal, an electoral commission advice, and then a parliamentary decision. But, you know, I would say on balance, that seems to me a, a pretty straightforward uh, and reasonable question. The question about other people in the UK, I think, is similar to the, 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 the question I answered earlier, that the, the tradition has been that the, the UK Parliament then decides after the referendum, although uh, I think it would be a reasonable expectation that people would accept the verdict of the, of the people on these matters. Uh, now, Steve uh, was asking, Steve, do you want to quickly remind me what you were asking about? The trouble is I can't read my writing, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> oh, yeah, sure. Uh, the, well, the, the argument is similar to the, uh, the, the, the one, the one I've, uh, I've deployed. I mean, I see that as a mechanism for, uh, for increasing uh, decision-making uh, in the Scottish economy. I think it will lead to increased revenues, not reduced revenues. I think it's a, a, an important competitive weapon for, for small economies. I don't think people should be, and I know this wasn't you so much as Alistair was criticising foreign direct investment. I mean, you know, I'm not certain why people should have a hang up about this. I mean, I, you know, I think it's a matter of very substantial interest and pride to Scotland 
uh, that we currently are the most favoured destination for foreign direct investment in these islands. I think the fact that companies such as Mitsubishi and, and Samsung and Doosan and uh, Gamesa uh, are seeing the energy potential of Scotland in liaison with Scottish companies like Clyde Blower, Scottish Power, Scottish and Southern, Global Energy, the Wood Group. You know, this is a great strength. Uh, to develop uh, uh, a major energy resources with access to the capital and expertise of international companies with a strong domestic presence engaged in the industry. So, uh, and I think the corporation tax argument uh, progresses the, the reason for locational decisions in Scotland. Uh, could Scotland have uh, bailed out uh, the Royal Bank of Scotland? Well, let me tell you, as, as somebody who was an economist at the Royal Bank of Scotland, when it made money. <laughs> Uh, the answer is yes. Uh, the reason for this is twofold. One is that the, the things that are usually regarded as the large sums in terms of investment uh, are actually liquidity provision and protection for, for bank assets. I, actually, the Bank of England makes money out of that, <laughs> incidentally, just in case you were wondering why, uh, why they were able to make such uh, large sums available. Uh, in terms of the GERS figures that I quoted, Scotland already in GERS is allocated our share of uh, UK financial interventions. Uh, successive chancellors of the Exchequer, and I'm not necessarily saying that you should believe every word of Alistair Darling and George Osborne, have said on many occasions that they intend to make a profit uh, from the equity uh, investment in the uh, financial institutions. But I've got to tell you, as a former Royal Bank economist, I think the best uh, solution to all of this uh, would not be have a regulatory system which allowed us to get into these circumstances again. Uh, I don't think, uh, given the consequences of debt, which have been manifest across many, many uh, economies uh, in Europe and, and America, that the financial system could tolerate uh, another financial shock such as that of 2008. Uh, so if one ever happened, uh, I think we'd all be going down together, uh, and therefore perhaps the priority is to have bank regulation which looks at things like capital ratios of banks uh, as being a kind of priority uh, as opposed to the Financial Service Authority which seemed to spend more time investigating money laundering uh, than it did supervising banks' equity ratios. So I think if we all kind of determine uh, that we have a regulatory system in the UK, in Scotland, in Europe uh, which uh, prevents uh, a 2008 reoccurrence, uh, then we'll all uh, be able to struggle with the consequences of the one that happened uh, and move to a, a much, much better place in the future. Thank you very much on that somewhat sobering response. I need to bring this session to a close, so can I thank you all for your patience. Uh, a lot of questions we could have taken which um, we don't have time for. Um, can I just ask you to join with me in thanking the First Minister for his um, presentation this evening and um, thank you all for being here. And, of course, he still gets the last words. Now, ladies and gentlemen, uh, Robert Burns once said that uh, freedom and whiskey gang together. Uh, and therefore, it's something of a tradition. Uh, in order to secure my invites to these prestigious uh, institutions, I, I present uh, a gift uh, to the host. This is a quake.
Uh, and for the, the Scots who asked the questions will know full well what it is. It's a, a loving cup uh, in the Gaelic language of Scotland. What happens with a quake is that you put the whiskey in the quake, uh, and then, of course, this will be banned at foreign office receptions in future, as we know. English whiskey. This, uh, no, not English whiskey. <laughs> not, not Irish whiskey. Not, not American. You put Scotch whiskey in the quake, and then you, you pass it round all of the students of the London School of Economics. <laughs> so, thank you very much for the invitation, and a pleasure in presenting you with a, a loving cup from Scotland. Thank you very much.